is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. America went to war in Iraq on March 20, 2003. On May 1st of that year, President George W. Bush declared military victory. But the fighting continued. President Barack Obama completed the truth withdrawal on December 18, 2011. But the fighting continues Aerial bombardment did not bring peace. Ground fighting did not bring peace. Signed documents did not bring peace. Conflict in our, in our world is very real. Sometimes it comes very close to home. Here's an example. If you've ever encountered road rage, you know that conflict can come very close to home. Some of us deal with conflict on a daily basis. Conflict is very real. And conflict has very tangible results. Consequences of the conflict that we can see, we can feel. Sometimes you can even touch the the consequences of conflict. And the Apostle Paul drops a hint here that there is conflict or at least a lack of peace in the church in the city of Philippi. Jeff referred to this in his message last week. He read from verse 2. Now, the Holy Spirit was not particular or explicit. We didn't get detail about what the problem was. And I think that that probably was a good thing. Number one, if you always agree with the Scripture and always agree with the Holy Spirit, you're on the right side, number one. Number two thinking it through a little bit, I think that if we'd gotten a lot of detail, we would have been more likely to say, oh, that's not exactly my situation. And so the instruction doesn't apply to me. Instead, we just know that there was a problem. The problem was between Euodia and Syntyche. Now, as Jeff pointed out last week, scholars are divided about just what the problem might have been. And it really doesn't matter. But these women have now, their names have been preserved for all time. And they will always be remembered. And what will they be remembered for? Go to work tomorrow and ask around a little bit. What are Euodia and Syntyche remembered for? You won't get very many takers on that one. If we weren't right here talking about it, I'd have a hard time remembering Euodia and Syntyche. But here's what they're remembered for. Through all the ages, until Jesus comes, these two women will be remembered for not getting along. What are they famous for? They couldn't get along with one another. Pretty much that's the summary of their life, at least as we know it. If your life would be summed up in a single statement, what might it be? 
How do you want people to remember you? Oh, yeah, he was always quick with a deadly comeback. Oh, she could hold a grudge. Nobody ever wanted to cross him. I remember her as the toughest woman in the company. What, what about our church? Summed up in one statement, what might she be remembered for? I want to share with you something that was written by Karen Maines in her book, The Key to a Loving Heart. She created a parable. And she titled it, The Brawling Bride. She described that suspenseful moment in a wedding ceremony. At the front stands the groom in a spotless tuxedo. Handsome, smiling, full of anticipation. Shoes shined, every hair in place as he anxiously awaits the appearance of his bride. All the attendants are in place, looking joyful and attractive. The magical moment finally arrives when the music swells to a crescendo and the stately wedding march begins. Everyone rises and looks toward the door for their first glimpse of the bride. Suddenly, there's a horrified gasp. The wedding party is shocked. The groom stares in embarrassed disbelief instead of a lovely woman dressed in elegant white, smiling behind a lace veil. The bride comes limping down the aisle. Her dress is soiled and torn. Her leg seems twisted. Ugly cuts and bruises cover her bare arms. Her nose is bleeding. One eye is purple and swollen. Her hair is a tangled mess. And the author then asks, doesn't this groom deserve better than this? And then the clincher. Alas, his bride, the church, has been fighting again. Calling them and calling us the church. The Apostle Paul wrote the following to the church in Ephesus. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Right here, the Holy Spirit tells us that we, the church, we are the bride of Christ. He sanctified her for himself. And will you agree with me that he deserves something better than a roller derby bride? Do you really think that a bump, a cross check, and a fight at every turn is really what Jesus wants from his bride. So how do we do it? How do we live at peace with one another, 
within our church, in our community, in our work, in our homes, just within ourselves, how do we live at peace? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to give us some insight. That's going to start right there with the first verse, first verse in our text at verse 4 of Philippians 4. It reads, Rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again. Rejoice. Several years ago, someone suggested to me that God commands action, but God never commands a feeling. Let that sink in. I've been trying to watch Scripture as I study for several years, and I think this might be right. God never, or God does, God God does command action, but God never commands a feeling. And yet, it seems that by apostolic authority, we have a contradiction. It seems that we're commanded to feel something. We're commanded to emote. We're commanded to be joyful. But I'm not convinced that we're told how to feel. I think instead that we're commanded to choose a behavior. Now, we all know it can be difficult to command someone to feel. Here's an example of that. A man was very nervous as he sat in the little office with the IRS agent. And the IRS agent was saying to him, We consider it a great privilege to live and work in the USA. And we expect you to eagerly pay your taxes with a smile. And the man said, Oh, That's a great relief. I thought you wanted me to pay with cash. (laughs) Now, you may feel that you have no choice in paying taxes. But you do have a choice about how you feel about it. You can do it with a light heart and be thankful for the security that our armed forces provide for us. You can pay your taxes knowing that you're doing your part to assist those who are in a genuinely desperate need. You can pay your taxes with gratitude that you're helping to preserve some of our priceless national wonders. Or you can take the other approach and you can grumble and complain about it ad nauseum. But in the end, you still pay your taxes. The same is true in most circumstances of life. You have a choice in how you respond. Now, I want to ask you to notice that the Apostle Paul does not say rejoice in paying taxes. He doesn't say rejoice in paying utility bills. Rejoice when you have the flu. Rejoice when the stock market fails. That would be rejoicing in circumstances. What does the Apostle Paul tell us in verse 4? Rejoice in the Lord. If you look for your joy in your bank account, or in politicians, or in other people, you will not do much rejoicing. We rejoice in the Lord. And do you remember who He is? We just read about Him in Ephesians 5. He is the one who loved the church and gave him 
self up for her to make her holy. What that teaches us is that Christ loves His church. He loves you. Rejoice in the fact that Christ loves you. That He has chosen you. Rejoice in the fact that He gave Himself up for you. As you do, you're going to notice some real changes. You will experience real joy. Philippians is about real joy for real people in real life. That means even in your difficult situation, even in your real life, you can have real joy. Because we find our joy in the Lord and not in our circumstances. As you choose joy, you may find that you are embroiled in fewer conflicts around you. One of the changes that you will experience is that you will respond differently to people around you when you have joy. And in doing so, you will discover the ability to be gentle. Paul tells us that everyone should be able to see our gentleness. Go back to Philippians 4 and verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, gentleness does not mean being weak or being a sissy. As an example of that, I want to tell you about my friend John, who is an officer with the Fort Wayne Police Department, and his canine Bodo. I did a wedding for him last weekend. Well, for John and Catherine, not for Bodo. Bodo is gentle. He plays with John's kids, and no one worries about the dog hurting one of the little ones. But that's when he's a dog at home. When he is a canine officer, it's a different story. I've been to some of the trainings where they work with these dogs, and these dogs are not weak or sissified. Bodo is a Belgian Malinois. These dogs can achieve a speed of 45 miles an hour. They have 42 teeth and have been measured with a bite that is the equivalent of 1,200 pounds per square inch. And yet this same dog plays with John and Catherine's children. See, gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is great strength under control. The writer of Proverbs teaches us something about that. If we would go to Proverbs 30, 33, we would read, For as churning milk produces butter, and as twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. But then... The Proverbs give us another approach. Proverbs 15.1, a, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. God is telling us you have a choice. You can churn, you can twist in anger, or you can respond gently. You can reduce conflict by being gentle. And you can find the strength to be gentle in choosing to find joy in the Lord. 
you will also reduce the level of conflict as you reduce your level of anxiety. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 this time. Do not be anxious about anything. (laughs) That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Not anxious about anything. And we would all like to be free from anxiety. But how? How how do you do that? How, How is anybody free from anxiety? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to go on and he's going to teach us. Do not be anxious for about anything, but in everything. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Paul is teaching us to trust. That is the key to overcoming anxiety. Anxiety is a lack of trust. Therefore, trust in God is the solution to anxiety. Instead of worry and fret, pray. Trust God to meet your needs. And the apostle adds in there, with thanksgiving. This is essential. Don't forget the thanksgiving part. Because as you are thanking God, you're going to reflect on what He has done. You're going to recall how He has provided. You're going to recall how He has been faithful. You're going to remember how He has proven that you can trust Him. And as you realize that you trusted Him in the past, that will give you confidence to trust Him in the future. And Paul teaches us you can trust Him because He is near. If we go on to verse 5, we read, The Lord is near. Now, I'm not sure what Paul means there. My mind went to a couple of promises that he might be referring to. One comes from Matthew 28, verse 20, where Jesus said, And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So, is that what Paul is thinking about? That, that the Lord is near? He's right here with me? Or does he have another promise in mind? We might go to Revelation 22 and verse 20. Yes, I am coming soon. Amen? Come, Lord Jesus. Now, I, Jesus is near. His return is at hand. I don't know which promise it is. It doesn't really matter because both promises are genuine. And both promises bring great comfort. And then I want to take you to Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul wraps it up for us. He teaches us. He teaches us to rejoice in the Lord. He teaches us to trust. And He tells us that when we do, the peace that transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds.
the late General Douglas MacArthur wrote something very profound about aging. He wrote about aging on his 75th birthday. He wrote this. In the central place of every heart, there is a recording chamber. So long as it receives messages of beauty, hope, cheer, and courage, so long are you young. When the wires are all down and your heart is covered with the snows of pessimism and the ice of cynicism, then and only then are you grown old. It seems to me that what General MacArthur said about aging applies to a whole lot of areas of life. The quality of our life is determined less by physical ailments and financial prosperity. Our life is determined more by our choices. Our lives are made complete when we choose to trust God and find our joy in Jesus Christ. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready for the peace of God to guard your heart and mind? Are you tired of keeping up the sentry work all by yourself? Are you ready to live with less anxiety? Are you ready to live in peace? I'd love to talk to you about that. Donna and I are going to be around for a little while this morning. And your elders are here. And they're very willing, very ready, and they're very capable to talk to you about how you can find genuine, lasting peace. Peace, as the Apostle describes it, that transcends or just completely goes beyond what we could ever understand. If you want that peace, talk to me, talk to one of the elders before you leave this building today. I want to lead us in a prayer.